If you would at this time, grab your Bibles, and we're going to get into the Word. We will be back in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. So Matthew chapter 5, back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And please stand with me as we look, and we're going to read through Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Let's read together, Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 48. says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Let's pray together. God, as we come together as your people. We come to look into your word, not just to hear what I have to say, but we want to hear from you. We want to know what you have said to us. We want to, want to gain a vision of this kingdom that you have offered to us. We want to be changed and transformed by you. So I pray that you would allow these words to wash over us, to dig deep into our hearts, into our souls, so that we can have new eyes to see ourselves with authenticity, so that we can be those who are whole, who are perfect like you. So guide us in this. Let us be open to the way that your Spirit will challenge us, will shape us, will ultimately change us. Let us be a community that lives as those who belong to your kingdom, who can then go out as salt and as light in this world, We look to you this morning, we commit this time to you, may your name be honored and lifted up through it, it is in the beautiful name of Jesus that I pray, amen. You guys have a seat. Let me ask you, how many of you have been uh, enjoying the uh, Marvel movies that have been put out over the last number of years? All right, many. My kids are actually, uh, we started letting them watch just a few here and there. 
loving it, captivated by it. But uh, since like 2008, Marvel's just been pumping out these superhero movies based on Stanley's comic books. Many of us are well aware of these things, all right? I think they've made something like over 20 of them in the last uh, 11 plus years. Uh, they're just uh, they're do- they're amazingly successful, and they keep, they keep pumping them out. People keep consuming them. And so uh, my wife and I have, have enjoyed watching these movies together, or at least I've enjoyed them, and she's at least endured watching them with me. But uh, um, the, the thing that's so captivating about these, these movies together is that, is that they, they really are intertwined together. They form this, this larger story, this larger narrative that's taking place. And so as you watch them, you kind of can see these connections, and, and you, can, you can enjoy a movie by itself and kind of, you know, get the storyline and they stand alone, but, but as you watch them together, you see how they're connected and how there's this larger story that's being played out as these characters cross over and they connect in different ways. And uh, in watching movies with my wife, one thing that I've, I've realized about my wife, for a, as detailed as she is in so many areas of her life, as, as on it, and, and, and she remembers everything, when it comes to movies, she actually has a terrible memory. And uh, don't, don't worry, I asked her if I could share this from you, so I'm not just sitting here bashing my wife. No, she, we, we actually laugh about it quite a bit. She has this terrible m- memory when it comes to watching movies. She doesn't know who the characters are, or, or who, who the actors are, and uh, she... She has no idea. So what I've, what I've found in watching these Marvel movies is that before we watch the new one, we always have to go back and, and, and watch the previous one, right? Um, it, we actually haven't even seen the, uh, the Endgame one, right? I've been avoiding spoilers for a long time, and I've done pretty well at it, so, so don't ruin it today. But, uh, but I know that we need to go back and watch Infinity War before we end up watching Endgame, right? Because if we, if we just go and sit down and watch Endgame together, for the first 30 minutes of the movie, my wife's going to be like, hey, uh... Asking questions like, uh, hey, who's the guy with the big gold glove? Like, uh, is he good or bad? Um, then she'll be like, hey, is, is that Tom Cruise? Um, and then, then like the worst one, she'll be like, hey, where's Batman? I'm like, wrong universe, babe. But, uh, but, but w- w- we have to, have to go back and watch the previous one so that we, so that we get the story and what's, what's being sh- played out. And similarly for us, as we walk through these smaller sections of Jesus' teaching, we have to keep them connected with the broader teaching that Jesus is setting forth to us. Sure, we can gain some practical application and some implications from each of these kind of smaller sections, but we have to grasp what Jesus is doing in this whole discourse. This is a unified sermon and teaching that Jesus is giving to us. And if we just focus on the, the, the individual parts, we may drift into mere moralistic teaching. So I want to jump right into things because we have a lot to cover this morning, but I want to start by just, number one, resetting our course, resetting where we're at and where we're going with this. If you've maybe missed a week or, or, or two here, um, or you're new here this morning, I, I, I want us to grasp where this is sitting in Jesus' teaching. So let's just take a minute to reset our course, then we will look at each of these three additional sections where we see three heart x-rays. And then we will finish at the end with this final question of how to be perfect. So how do we reset our course? Let's re-establish our bearings. Where has Jesus taken us? He has begun to preach that the kingdom is at hand, and so therefore he calls us to repent or to, to change the trajectory of your life. And as Jesus preaches about this kingdom that he is bringing, he begins to show us and describe for us the values that are embodied by those who live in this realm. 
So we saw that in the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us that living in line with His kingdom values is the path to human flourishing. The blessed life, the happy and flourishing life is going to be found through this way of living, this way of being in the world. And so now, as as, as we are those who are embodying these characteristics, He says that we are sent out as salt and light in the world to to preserve the world, to, to flavor the world, to be those who declare and display this kingdom in this world of darkness. And then Jesus takes a moment to pause and, and, and wants to correct a potential misunderstanding about who he is. You see, you see many could, could have thought, man, this guy is, he's, he's teaching us something new. He's the new big deal. You know, he's the new thing, the new fad, the latest whatever. So, so let's go check him out. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not offering something just completely new, but actually, I am coming on the same trajectory as all of the Old Testament. Jesus says He did not come to abolish or to sweep away the law as just merely some piece of antiquated Jewish legal jargon, but no, He says He came to fulfill the law or to embody everything that the law was meant to draw out of people ultimately summed up in a love for God and a love for others, as Brandon really unpacked for us a few weeks back. And then in verse 20, Jesus drops this crucial line when He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're never going to enter the kingdom. And this statement certainly shocked Jesus' original audience, right? Right? Because the, the Pharisees and the scribes, sometimes we kind of, you know, uh, make them look really bad, like they were just these, like, you know, enemies of Jesus. But in their day, I mean, they were the, they were the religious elite. They were the ones who knew their Bible, who, who, who were seeking to, to lead the people in, in what it meant to obey the law. So for them, if, if he's saying, man, if the Pharisees and the scribes don't, get, don't, don't have it together, then, then what hope do we have? If the standard is more righteous than the Pharisees, then what chance do we got? But what Jesus begins then to show us is why the Pharisees don't have a true righteousness. And Jesus in this section is beginning to tell us that unless our religious expressions are replaced by heart-renewed, love-motivated actions then we've completely missed what God desires from us. So then to show us what this greater righteousness looks like, to give us a picture of that, Jesus has been taking practical examples of how this works out by taking common application of the Mosaic law in that day and surgically getting past the mere exterior act of obeying the law And getting down to the ultimate purpose of these commands. And a couple weeks ago, Matt walked us carefully through the thorny issues of anger, lust, and divorce. Thank you, Matt, for taking that on and not, you know, that I was able to get out of that one. But but now we have this second triad of the swearing of oaths, getting back at each other, and loving our enemies. And you see, these are not just independent moral exhortations that Jesus is giving us, but Jesus is presenting the sustained argument that starts in 17 and goes all the way through verse 48, and ultimately even gets unpacked throughout the rest of the sermon. But in all six of these specific issues that he brings up, 
Jesus is calling us to evaluate not just our actions, but our heart that drives our behaviors. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, these things can be uncomfortable, right? They certainly were uncomfortable for Jesus' first listeners. Because Jesus is not just giving us moral boxes that we can check off, but He's exposing our heart at its deepest, most authentic self. He's really exposing us. And getting down to that level can be uncomfortable. He's calling us back to the Beatitudes to say, are we pure in heart? Asking this this ultimate fundamental question, what does it mean to be good? Not just to do good, but to be good. And that is what this whole unit is drawing out. And then it concludes in verse 48 with this just striking statement, this weighty declaration that you must be perfect as your Father is perfect. And that's where we will kind of conclude with things here today. But that that kind of sets the trajectory where we're going. He's using each of these situations that we're going to look at to to draw us, to evaluate this deep heart. What I'm going to call, he's giving us x-rays of our heart. He's calling us to look past just the exterior and get down to the root So let's dive into these three x-rays of our heart that Jesus gives us. First, the swearing of oaths in verses 33 to 37. And this first issue, as as you look at it and you you read it, may seem like a relief after getting hit by Matt's sermon a couple weeks ago, right? Because it's like, you may look at it and you'll be like, whew, I'm kind of off the hook here. I haven't sworn any oaths lately, so I think I'm good, right? Don't you love it when the, whoever, you know, the sermon doesn't really connect with your issue? You've got plenty of other issues, but that's not one of them. And so, yeah, we don't have issues with swearing oaths, right? You know, I'm always failing in my oath swearing. It's not common practice for us, right? There's only a few, like, really important settings in which we will swear oaths, right? You know, maybe if you've taken the stand in, in court or been on a jury, you will swear, you'll be sworn in there. Or at a wedding ceremony, there's the, the, the declaration of vows to one another. Um, I don't know if doctors still swear the Hippocratic Oath, but that's been a thing. So, but, you know, we may casually throw around swearing here and there, but, but in Jesus' day, swearing was actually a pretty common practice. It was something that had become commonplace, and it was the abuse of this practice of oath-taking that Jesus confronts here. And so Jesus opens up, and he has this statement that he's repeated over and over where he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And it's important to recognize how Jesus opens up each of these things, why you have, you have heard that it was said. You know, usually when he alludes to the Old Testament, Jesus and, and the New Testament writers will say, it is written. It's written in the Old Testament, but he, he doesn't say that. He says, you all have heard, or you've read and you've, you've heard in this way what the Old Testament says. So where did they hear this? Um, this isn't actually a specific text or anything that Jesus quotes, but kind of a general summary of, the, of these, these multiple Old Testament passages. Passages such as Exodus 20, verse 7, Leviticus 19, 12. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. 
and you will be guilty of sin. So the Old Testament law actually takes the declaration of an oath very seriously. It was intended to be a binding element on one's speech. So the Jews especially took very seriously any oath that called on the covenant name of God. Uttering the name of Yahweh became so important and so serious that essentially they stopped even using it. The Pharisees saw themselves as respecting the name of Yahweh. They would not swear by God's name. That was taken very seriously, so they wouldn't even do that because that certainly is binding. But then they began to create all these other ways of swearing oaths. So they wouldn't swear by the name of God, but they would swear by maybe Jerusalem because, you know, that's a really important place. So if I swear by that, that means what I'm saying is, is important and is, is that, that I mean it. And so, so they, they kind of created this, this loophole where they, they, they wouldn't swear by the name of God. And, and, and if you didn't swear by the name of God, then technically, according to the Old Testament, your, your oath wasn't necessarily binding. So they created this loophole that in the swearing of oaths in which certain things were binding and other things were not, and you kind of had to know which things you could swear by that you could kind of get out of. Jesus actually unpacks this even further with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, where he says, hey, you guys are blind guides because you say that if someone swears by the temple, oh, that that means nothing. That, That actually isn't a binding oath. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then that's serious. And then he says, also, also you, you say, you know, if someone swears by the altar, that's not a big deal. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, then that's, that's really serious. And, and so Jesus is, is calling them out. You see, see what they were doing? They were kind of creating this, this system in which they could swear by something and kind of try to bolster their claim, while at the same time not technically be bound by the oath that they swore. They had created this system of deception which gave the pretense of commitment to one's word while technically allowing for you to back out of what you said and simply be deceptive. And this way of swearing oaths became a way of manipulating people and situations for one's own advantage. And Jesus comes in here and he says, guys, in my kingdom, we're not going to play these games. He says, if this is what you're going to do, if this is what's going on, don't even take an oath at all. He's not denying the oath, the declaration of oath and different things in the Old Testament, but he's saying if this is how it's going to go down, don't even swear an oath. And he says, you know what, guys? God owns everything. You know, the earth is his footstool. You can't even, you know, do anything to change your, your hair color. So um, in that day, they didn't have dyes, so they, they couldn't change their hair color. You got gray hair. That's what it was. But uh, for... For Jesus, he's saying, he's saying it doesn't work because God owns everything. He rules over everything. So if you want to swear by something else, you're ultimately swearing by God anyway. And he says the laws about swearing oaths were intended to embed honesty in people and to, 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 to show that our words have, had integrity. And so Jesus says, for those living in his kingdom... They just need to speak straightforward truth. When you say yes, you should mean it. When you say no, you just mean it. He says anything more and further than that comes from evil. So we don't swear oaths, but we wouldn't do that type of thing with our words, would we? You know, kind of uh, tell half-truths, make loose commitments. 
embellish things a little bit so that people think about us or view us a certain way? We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that, would we? In what ways do your words present something other than the straightforward truth? Do you tell people that you'll, you'll do things to make them think you're the certain type of person, but then come up with all sorts of ways and reasons and excuses to back out and not follow through with what you said? If someone confronts you on an issue, will you say anything or do anything just to get them off of your back without actually any intention to, to, to consider and listen to them? Do you constantly write checks with your mouth and your words that can't be cashed? Jesus says all the ways that we manipulate situations with our words, we color and shade things a certain way so that people will view us a certain way. We, we kind of embellish that story about ourselves. We want people to view us like this. All the ways that we do that, that we present ourselves as something other than the truth, he says, ultimately comes from evil. And we all do this in little, subtle ways. And all of our justification for it, all the ways we minimize it, Jesus says we need to recognize that it's not just, you know, I didn't mean to. It's not just, you know, oh, it wasn't a big deal. It ultimately comes from an evil, wicked place within us. So Jesus calls us not just to accurate oath swearing, but to honesty of our heart. Do we have honesty and integrity and wholeness in our words? We move on to the second issue that Jesus raises, this issue of revenge, verses 38 to 42. Here Jesus is referencing laws of restitution found in passages such as Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. And the statement of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's what they heard, these are actually set in these larger contexts that, that kind of reveal and outline how justice should be meted out within society. And so in those passages, you can read what to do when your ox gores your neighbor's ox. Or you could, you know, what, what to do in, in, in cases of manslaughter. Or what to do when, when you encounter a false witness. And so within there, there's these, these statements that, that are summed up by an eye for an eye. And they're known as lex talionis, or the, the laws of retaliation. And they're actually found in multiple law codes of the ancient Near East. And these laws, according to kind, were intended to curb escalated vengeance, right? We see this in society. I see this in my own household, right, with my children. When, uh, when one brother steals another brother's Lego, how does the other one respond? Does he respond in kind by, by just uh, trying to take a Lego back, or does he respond by trying to have a conversation with him? No, he escalates things by taking a Lego and hurling it at his brother's head, Right? That's how he deals with it. That's our natural inclination, is to take things further into our own hands. So when we read these laws of equal retribution, these are guidelines for a society to seek justice and to avoid the compounding of evil as justice is often taken into one's own hand and then punishment determined by the offended person. 
And at first, it may seem that Jesus is actually just disregarding all of these Old Testament commands because he, he seems to give the complete antithesis of this. But Jesus is not denying the, the ultimate purpose or good of these laws, but he's confronting the twisted abuse of them by those who should know the law. And the Pharisees are those who had taken these laws of societal justice and turned them into ways to justify personal vendetta against someone that they felt wronged by. Right? Would we do that? Would we, would we want to take things into our own hands and seek our own vindication? In what ways do you do that? Do you become the judge of others? And what does Jesus say to us who often resort to this kind of vigilante justice? He says, do not resist the evil person. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other. If someone takes your shirt, give him also your jacket. He says, go the extra mile to those who manipulate you. Give to the one who begs of you. Don't refuse to lend to him. So naturally, we ask, are, are, are these statements to be taken literally? Like, are, are we supposed to just take it and just, just anytime someone does wrong to us? Or are we supposed to give out money to every single person we see maybe holding a sign on the streets? And I don't believe Jesus is giving these blanket commands, but he's using hyperbole to make a very distinct point. It's just like he did pre, in the previous section where he says that, that you may need to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand. Jesus is using these extreme statements to challenge their assumption about personal justice. He's saying, what if the most important thing is not getting back at someone? Because let's be honest, when we want justice for ourselves, we oftentimes just want someone else to feel the pain like we do. And Jesus is not saying that justice doesn't matter but he's saying, as it says in James 1.20, our wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. Most often, our pursuit of justice only leads to further violence, to further wickedness, to greater hurt, and compounded evil. And so Jesus is not calling us just to mere passivity as if we just kind of just take whatever and just are a doormat for everyone. He's not saying that, but he's actually calling us to confrontation with different and better tactics. He's saying, what if we took a higher road? What if we absorbed the wrongs committed against us for the sake of peace and restoration and community, and we entrusted ourselves to God who will ultimately satisfy all of our longings for wrongs to be made right. He's saying, what if the right thing to do would be to respond to evil with kindness? What if the greatest weapon against hatred and abuse would actually be mercy and compassion? You see, in our society, people don't, don't want to let anybody walk over you. You've got to stand up for yourself. You're not going to take that from anyone. It's kind of our, the, the cultural statement of the day, right? Daniel and I uh, witnessed this just the other day when we were sitting outside of Starbucks, and uh, this, this gal was trying to, like, physically reserve a parking spot for, like, her friend coming over, and uh, somebody else came up and wanted to park there. 
because you can't park a person in a parking spot, I guess. So this, this lady's sitting there, and they start yelling at each other. And she's like, I'm saving it. She's like, no, I, I want to park there. And so they start kind of going back and forth. Eventually, the other lady pulls up and parks. Then she gets out and comes and kind of confronts the lady. And, and you, know what they did, you know what they did not do? Say, hey, you know, hey, hey sorry about that. I, I was just trying to save this and try to explain it. No, one of them starts cursing at the other one. And the other one, in, in turn, starts cursing back. And there's this cursing match that kind of ensues. And then they both walk away. And I'm sure both of them felt like, man, I sure told them. Let them, let, 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 let them have it. But was either one of them actually, like, left that conversation actually feeling better? Like, like things were actually resolved? Like, like there was any, any growth and progress? No. And Jesus is saying... When we respond in kind and just, just respond out of just anger and angst and, and, and want to execute our form of punishment on others, that only leads to greater and escalated evil. He's saying, what if, what if we actually responded and confronted evil with compassion, with love towards that person? Not mere passivity, but a new approach. Approach of someone who, who has changed and who is different, who, who depends on God to ultimately give us justice. What if we did, as First Peter 2 says, it says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So who is it in your life that you're holding a grudge against, waiting for them to get their comeuppance, waiting for them to get what they deserve? Maybe you have a coworker who's just a pain in your side, a manager who regularly comes down on you and abuses your hard work. How do you respond? Do you go and find power in Christ to respond with care for that person to maybe learn and understand why they are such a difficult and inconsiderate person? Uh, years ago, many of you know, I, I worked uh, for a long time in the restoration industry, cleaning up water damages and fire damages, and I did this out in Pennsylvania for a long time. And out there, I had a boss who uh, generally was a good guy, I liked him, but when we were on jobs, I just always felt like he was, he was shirking things and putting it on me. And... Uh, one of the ways he would do that is he would go into a job and he would kind of act like he was working and what he would do is start, sometimes we'd be tearing out wet drywall and insulation. So he'd go around and start like tearing things down, but we had to, we had to bag it all up and clean it all up and he would just kind of do the easy part and just kind of rip things down and, and make a big mess and act like he was doing it. Then he'd find a reason to go to the truck and do something for a long time. And then I, I and the other guys were, were stuck having to clean it all up, the hard part of actually shoving insulation in and getting all itchy with it, where, where he just kind of made the mess and tore things down, did kind of the fun part. And, and for years, it just always, always bugged me. It always bothered me. And you know what? I didn't actually, resp- I, I, I kind of took it, but I took it pretty passively as I reflect on it. And I actually then just begrudgingly kind of talked about him with my other coworkers or just inside just kind of vented at him. I never actually, never actually went to him and said, hey, hey, Jess, why, why don't you just, uh, you know, take care of everything else that you need to do and I'll just, I'll, I'll take care of all this, all this stuff and I'll just clean it up. Like when, when I, I never actually offered in, in, in that way. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's not just passivity, but to actually, actually approach it and confront and say, hey, you know, how can, how can I help you? How can I, how can I care for you in this? Who is it in your life 
that just pushes your buttons, that drives you crazy. Maybe you have the worst roommate who's so inconsiderate and you just want them to know what it feels like to be treated like that and how much they inconvenience you, how they make things hard on you. Maybe in your marriage you feel unloved, disrespected, not pursued by your spouse, and so, you know what, you give them a little of the same treatment. And maybe you find your relationship in just absolute gridlock because neither of you are willing to budge on it. Will you be the one to turn the other cheek? Who do you look at maybe that just seems to always have everything going out great and you'd like a little bit of cosmic justice and you, you kind of selfishly, subtly on the side just, just desire for them to maybe go through something difficult like you've been through in your life or your relationships? What if instead of harboring our angst, our animosity towards others, those who have wronged us, if we harbor those things until they feel the heat of our wrath against them through our rejection of them, through our slander of them, what if we simply forgave them as God has forgiven us? What if we actually listen to Romans chapter 12 that says, bless those who persecute you, bless, do not curse them. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil, but use new tactics. Overcome evil with good. This is what Jesus is challenging us with. Not to abuse the law of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, for our own selfish, sinful means, but to respond in the way that God has responded to us with with kindness and compassion. Third issue, the Jesus and final issue, actually the sixth in this series, is this issue of loving your enemies. Verses 43 to 48. And the last of these uh, scenarios of true heart obedience is rooted in Leviticus 19.18, the classic well-known statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But what you'll notice quite quickly when you read from Leviticus, and even if you read the rest of the Torah, is that the second part of Jesus' statement is absent, glaringly absent. Nowhere does it say, hate your enemies. And this is where Jesus makes his distinct point. You see, the Pharisees had taken this command to love neighbor and conveniently limited it to only certain people. They had then moved forward with the natural implication, we are to love only our neighbors, and therefore, you actually hate your enemies. Makes sense, right? It's perfect logic. And there was actually a lawyer who came to Jesus on this very issue in Luke chapter 10. And in Luke 10, uh, this, this lawyer comes up to Jesus, and it says, looking to put him to the test. And he says, hey, Jesus, he says to him, what shall I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus responds to him. He says, hey, well, you're an expert in the law. What, what does the law say? This man replies to him. He says, well, you know what it says? It says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, ding, 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 correct. That is absolutely correct. Go and do that. But then it says that the man comes back with another question. It says, well, 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 Jesus. And what it says is, as Luke records it, it says, this man desiring to justify himself asks this. He says, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? You've got to tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus says, oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. He says, let me tell you a little story. There was a, there was a man walking down the road, and uh, he was attacked by robbers, left for dead, beaten in the road, dying. And along comes a priest. The priest looks at this man and says, oh, that man's hurt. He's not my neighbor, and he moves on. Another man comes by, a Levite comes by, and sees the man lying in the, in the road, hurting, says, boy, that, that guy sure needs a neighbor. Where's his neighbor at? And he keeps moving. Then this third man comes along, a Samaritan. And Samaritans are those who the Jews hate. They're the enemies. The ones that they, are despised, these, these half-breeds, these traitors. And the Samaritan walks by. And Jesus says that this is the one who steps in cares for the man, bandages him, puts him up in a, in a hotel, cares for him. So then Jesus asks this very difficult question back to the lawyer, says, hey, so which of those three men was a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man says, well, I suppose the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus says, ding, 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 again, go and do Likewise. You see, who our neighbor is cannot be limited to geographical boundaries, to ethnic community, or any other criteria that we impose to avoid showing mercy to others. I love how how the pastor Ligon Duncan spoke of this passage. He said that Jesus is challenging the lawyer's question. He's telling the lawyer that his question stinks. He's saying that the question is not, who is my neighbor? but rather, are you a neighbor? And Jesus, in this parable, and here in this sermon, is surgically revealing how the Pharisees have used and abused the law to justify their ignoring of the heart of the law. They've twisted words in the law to create loopholes for their sin. If they can redefine and limit the command to love their neighbor then they can treat those that they dislike with hatred and still keep the law. And Jesus says that is total garbage. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And if you do that, you know what you're going to be like? You know what you'll become? You'll be like God. You see, God gives sunshine and rain on both the evil and the good in the very uh, display of of nature and the moving of the seasons. God displays His his graciousness to everyone. Then He says, if you love those people like you, what reward do you have? Tax collectors do that. If you're friendly just to your brothers, like Gentiles do that. Right? We all know good people. We all know great people that we work with who are, who are nice and kind people to others in their community. He's saying, like, big deal. 
you like and are friendly to those people who are easy to like. I mean, tax collectors were, the, were despised of society. They were, they were traitors to their own people and thieves and, and stole from their own. But guess what? They even have friends. They at least respect other tax collectors. He's saying, no, if you, you want to be a radically different people, you want to show the world something amazingly different about you, ones who, how, how to really reflect the character of God, he says, love those who are impossible to love. If you only want to be around those people like you, those people that you just really connect with, if you only want to be in life group with those who just are easy to talk to, who, who you know, are going through the same season of life as you, everything just, just kind of connects, like, that's par for the course. Everybody wants that. But what about striving to love those who are annoying, who are who are difficult, who you don't connect with, who conversation with is just awkward and strained? What about those who, who have hurt you, who dislike you in the workplace, who are always trying to take a jab at you? What if you love those people? What if you respond with, with kindness and graciousness and mercy towards them? Who do you need to be a neighbor towards? Who has God put in your path that you try to justify how you can ignore and avoid and even hate? Maybe it's your actual neighbor who doesn't mow his lawn, plays loud music and has parties at night, keeps your kids awake. Maybe when you read that political tweet and you have the perfect response queued up that will just destroy that person. What if instead you sent them a message and said, hey, I'd love to sit down and, and talk about this issue with you. I'd love to hear where you're at on this. We cannot stop with the question of who is our neighbor, but instead, who has God called us to be a neighbor to? And with that, we summarize these, we, we, we conclude these six specific issues that Jesus is calling us to evaluate our heart to look deep inside of us. And then at the end of this section, Jesus then makes a statement that upon first reading will likely crush us. He says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there it is. If that's the standard, then what, what hope do we have, right? Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you felt like this about faith for a long time. I, I can never measure up. I can never get everything just right. I constantly am failing. I don't think I can keep going on this. I'm not going to measure up. Everybody else seems to have it all together and figured out, and I'm just floundering in my failures. Maybe that's you. Maybe when you read a statement like this in Scripture, that's how it strikes you. And that is one reason why I'm fairly convinced that the translation of perfect may not be the most helpful thing. As we read perfect, what do we think? We think no mistakes. Think of a perfect game thrown in baseball where it is, there are no mistakes. Nobody gets on base. It's perfect. Well, the Greek word that's actually used here is teleos. And it's, it's really awesome how Jesus inserts this word in here. This word teleos does, does mean mature but it, or uh, perfect, but it's this idea of, of maturity or wholeness or completion. 
Jonathan Pennington, in his commentary, says that this is the same call to holiness that we see throughout the Old Testament. You know, going back to Leviticus 19, he says, be holy, for I am holy. We read that in 1 Peter as well. But Jesus here, instead of using holy, he inserts and changes it to teleos, or wholeness. And he does this because because, you know, what, what, what God is calling for in holiness is not moral perfection, but a wholehearted orientation toward God. A wholehearted orientation toward God. And so Jesus uses teleos because holiness for the scribes and the Pharisees had become exclusively tied to external matters of purity and behavior. They saw themselves as holy. They thought of themselves as holy. So Jesus uses a different word and says, you think you're holy, but Jesus challenges them on their wholeness. You think you're holy, but are you teleos? Are you mature? Are you whole? Are you complete? He's saying those who embrace His kingdom are those who are holistic persons, they're not divided, but fully integrated humans, which means that their outward actions align with their inward motives. Whole people, teleos people, are those who are pure in heart. They have no facade of self-righteousness, but are authentic, changed from the inside out. Another way to say it is that it's the goal or end for which something exists and has been achieved. The goal or end for which something exists has been achieved. Jesus is calling us back to Genesis. The ultimate purpose, the purpose for which God created us as humans to bear His image in this world, to reflect Him. That's why Jesus says, if you love your enemies, you will be like God. To be teleos means to, to, to accomplish and begin to fulfill that ultimate purpose that for which God created you. To bear His image. And to be this kind of person offers amazing freedom. When we pursue teleos in Christ, we can stop putting up a front, using our words to bolster an image that we want to portray. We don't have to vindicate ourselves through getting even. And we can turn hatred of enemies into love and compassion toward them. But we must remember as we read through this section that Jesus is not just giving us six ways to be whole, but He's giving us a grid through which we can evaluate our whole life. And we have to learn from each of these six things, but we have to look beyond them to consider what Jesus would say to us as we have read our Bibles, as we think we obey it. What would Jesus say to us today? In what ways have we, have we heard the Scriptures, but maybe twisted or redefined it, spun it to meet our own legalistic purposes? Maybe you have heard it said, as it does in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. So you know what? We, we show up to church at least three out of four Sundays. We make it to life group. But what would Jesus say to us? Would He say, love this people. Lay down your lives 
for one another. Pour out yourself in service to each other. Love His church. Maybe we've heard it said and interpreted the Scriptures to read to us that, you know what? You need to save sex for marriage. But would Jesus say to us to guard each other's heart and to protect one another's purity? So don't push the boundaries of what you can technically do without going all the way. Maybe you have heard it said, pray without ceasing. So you pray three times a day before your meal. But would Jesus say to us, cultivate an ongoing life of conversation and dependence in prayer with me? Maybe we have heard it said, don't gossip. But would Jesus say to us, stop slandering others and calling it just getting it off my chest? Or I simply need to process this with someone. Maybe we have heard it said, be content with what you have. But would Jesus say to us, stop being shaped by rampant materialism and live generously for my kingdom? You see, throughout the sermon, Jesus is drawing us to this deep reflection of our being, who we are at our core. When all of our actions are fully exposed, all the loopholes and justifications for why we do what we do is stripped away. No more excuses. Who are you? What kind of person are you? What is your way of being in the world? Is your life shrouded in mere external conformity to some acceptable standard established either by society at large or even the Christian community that we have or by your own conception of what is reasonable and good enough? Or are you living as an authentic God-oriented, holistic person. You know, as I poured over this text all week, I kept, I kept thinking I shouldn't be the one to stand up here and say these things. Because as I look at my life, I don't exhibit wholeness in so many of these ways. Just two weeks ago, after uh, Matt's sermon, Matt just unleashed this, this powerful message to us. And uh, the whole time I was sitting there like, yes and amen, you know, Fight anger, fight lust, love what, what God loves. And uh, after the service, we had to uh, rush down to Colorado Springs to drop our kids off at camp, so we uh, needed to pick up food and uh, eat it on the way out of town. And so uh, I ordered Panera on my phone app and rushed over there to get our food, um, ran inside, you know, had to wait just a little bit, was kind of annoyed at that, and then, uh, but they got the food, I, I grabbed the bag, went back out to the, the vehicle, got in there, went to throw the van in gear, and my wife, as she's opening it, getting the food out, she'd ordered a salad. And they forgot to put a, uh, a fork, utensils, in the bag. You know what my response was? I literally said out loud, those fools. And I ran inside to get a fork. And on the way back out, like, like God just hit me like a ton of bricks. My kids also heard it and took notice of that too. They heard the sermon as well. So that was a humbling experience. <laughs> but we... We so easily hear these things. We can say yes and amen, and then we, we turn around and do the opposite. Because it comes from evil, it comes from within us. And you know what? We will fall short. We won't be perfect as we think of perfect. 
But God is wanting to make us whole people. And so what He calls us to is the same thing that we call each of us to every day, is to repent, to change again the trajectory of our life. And we do that as we look to Him. You see, God is the one who actually keeps His oath to us. As it says in Hebrews, that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. And since He had no one greater to swear by, He swore by Himself. And so then we can flee for refuge and might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And we have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus is the one who did not retaliate when he was wronged, but as 1 Peter says, when he was reviled, he reviled not in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was the true neighbor who did not hate his enemies, but as Romans says, he was the one who showed his love to us while we were yet sinners. And we who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So as we do every week, as we take the elements here in a minute, We look to Him who became the perfect man for us. And as uncomfortable as it may be to look at ourselves at this level of honesty, this level of openness, the purpose of Jesus' words is not to load us down with a bunch of guilt, but He's actually offering us this beautiful vision of the path to find flourishing. This is an invitation Because what kind of community would this look like if these were the realities that we embodied? Is that not a community you would long to be a part of? You would long to live in? Have everything just stripped away that, 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 that shields us from each other, that hinders relationship? All the judgment that occurs between one another, the the, the thoughts that we have against each other and that you wonder if somebody has against you. What if that was all just stripped away as we embody this vision that Jesus is setting forth to us? He's giving us this path to flourishing. So this is not a word of condemnation, but this is an offer to fullness. To be whole people who are transformed by this King. Let me pray for us and ask that God would continue to do a work in us, to to wash over us, to, to reflect on these things in our lives, and ultimately to look to Him, the true and better neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I love Your Word. I love how it convicts us where it's necessary, will lay us bare before You, and yet at the same time bring such healing and hope. So I pray that these words would continue to ring true to us, that we could continue to live in this sermon that you gave so many years ago, that these truths still stand, that we can be a people who, are, who find wholeness, maturity, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness that you've offered to us. So we look to you and ask for you to do a work that only you can.
And it is in the beautiful name of our Savior that I pray. Amen.